Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey guys and welcome to Mysteries and Histories with me, your host, Georgia Marie. This podcast audio is adapted from my YouTube channel. I wanted to make my content more accessible for those of you on the go and we all love a podcast. So if I ever reference anything on screen or a photograph, please bear in mind this audio was originally made for video. It won't hinder your listening experience at all, but just to save any confusion. And if you do want to go and subscribe to my channel, I'm just Georgia Marie over on YouTube. And with that, let's get into it. Hey guys, I'm Georgia and welcome back for another episode of my midweek mystery series where today we're going to be taking a look at the case of Tammy Vincent. I was actually contacted by a viewer to cover this story, somebody who has researched and followed this case themselves for quite a while and are desperate for an answer. It's one of those stories that needs as much coverage as it can get otherwise it's simply going to remain cold. But is this case really that cold? This one is a complicated web, but I think there's more than a chance of it getting solved. Tammy's family might not ever get justice, but they can get answers, closure, and that's something. I suppose our story begins at 8.50am on the 26th September 1979, when the body of a girl was found by a jogger on a Taburon beach in Marin County, California, located at Richardson Bay Park at the end of Greenwood Beach Road. This area is now known as Blackie's Pasture. This was a horrific sight to behold. The body had been set on fire and the face and upper torso had been burned in an attempt by the perpetrator to hide her identity. The face was burned beyond recognition. Investigators who attended the scene said it was amongst the most horrific crimes they had ever worked. According to the book, The Education of a Coroner, Lessons in Investigating Death by John Bateson, the crime scene told a pretty clear story of what had happened that night. The victim, whoever she was, had been led down a gravel pathway from the car park to the middle of the beach. At one point, the girl was pushed to the ground, as illustrated by blood on the gravel and gravel later found embedded in her face. About 10 foot away from that spot, there was more blood surrounded by a number of footprints. In this spot, the girl will be stabbed 43 times. Most articles you'll find about this case will describe this weapon as an ice pick, but it was actually an awl. They're similar things but have subtle differences. An awl is a small, sharp, pointed instrument used for piercing small holes in materials used by shoemakers, saddlers and dressmakers. And I assume I don't need to describe what an ice pick is. The stab wounds though weren't enough for this girl to be killed instantly, although undoubtedly she would have been in a lot of pain. She managed to get up and ran several feet away but collapsed again. This is when she was set on fire, doused with acetone and set alight with a cigarette lighter, but still she refused to die, despite the fire burning off all her hair, clothes and one side of her face. She ran again before collapsing again. It was at this point that she was shot once in the back of the head, as she lay face down in the sand, execution style. 
The bullet was later recovered from her body, but the authorities have declined to announce the type of caliber or the gun used in this case. Sometimes authorities have to hold back information like this to ensure that they do get the right person in the end. Investigators would later find the all laying in the sand alongside the cigarette lighters, acetone containers and a paint can. The items were tested for fingerprints but only found two partials on the paint can and that wasn't enough for identification. A couple of sources stated that as well as the burning, black paint had also been thrown over the girls' bodies. Whoever had committed this murder clearly hadn't put much thought into covering up the crime because alongside all of this, there was also a receipt left nearby which showed that the awl, the acetone and the paint had all been purchased the night before from a Woolworths in San Francisco. Investigators later spoke to the sales clerk from the purchase who did remember the buyer vividly, describing him as a white man wearing a white leisure suit that really stood out and he had a teenage girl with him about 5 foot 6 and 125 pounds, which perfectly matched the description of our victim. But this was 1979, there wasn't CCTV footage of this and as nobody really knew about DNA evidence yet, there wasn't much more they could do in the investigation. A witness did come forward stating that he thought he'd seen a bonfire on the beach about 3am that morning and later realised it must have been the burning body. And other witnesses saw a blue van speeding away, but that was about all they had in terms of clues about the crime itself. Jane Doe was estimated to be between 18 and 22. As I said a moment ago, she was 5 foot 6 and 125 pounds with light brown or blonde shoulder length wavy hair. That's if she was indeed the same girl seen by the sales clerk with the killer. She had blue eyes and red nail polish on her fingers and toes. The only distinctive feature on her face were prominent protruding upper incisors and she was wearing a short sleeve black knit blouse, beige trousers with red and blue piping on the back pockets and high heeled wooden soled shoes in a size 8. Despite all of this information they were unable to identify her and without that they had no way of knowing why she died and at whose hands. She had no jewellery, no distinctive marks or scars to help with identification. Despite the police following several hundred leads, there was nothing and that's how the story would stay for 27 years with no name and no answers. Jane Doe's body was buried in an unmarked grave at Valley Memorial Park in Novato on the 12th of December 1979. Luckily, she wasn't cremated. But Marin County at the time never cremated unidentified victims even though it was the cheap option and standard practice. They didn't know about DNA at the time, but they did have the foresight to think that one day there might be new evidence or new technology that could come to light. They placed her body in a plastic body bag and placed this in the wooden casket, which was then laid in a concrete grave liner with a lid. They wanted to ensure that her body was as well preserved as possible, just in case. They also took numerous swabs and pubic hair samples before burial, but then the case went cold. At least it went cold until April 2001, when a detective called Steve Nash was assigned the case after the Tiburon police decided it was time to take a look at it again. They contacted the Marin County Sheriff's Office and asked them to reopen it. With newer technology, there might be some more evidence they could find. 
In June 2002, the body was exhumed so they could extract DNA samples. The skull and other bones were sent to the State Department of Justice DNA lab in Richmond for analysis. However, they were only able to develop a partial profile so the DNA was of no use. However, by August 2004, they had been able to create a partial DNA profile, but that doesn't mean they were immediately able to get any matches. Databases back then weren't exactly what they are nowadays. It would still be a couple of years until the technology caught up. In May 2015, the Centre for Missing and Exploited Children were able to create a composite image from autopsy and crime scene images, so they had an image of what they thought Jane Doe may have looked like in life. Around this same time, in February 2003, the family of a missing woman called Tammy Vincent were contacted by authorities in Washington. Tammy had been reported missing on the 29th of August 1979 from King County in Washington, aged just 17 years old, and her family never heard from her again. With Tammy's missing persons report in their records, and four unidentified victims of Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, to reunite with their names, they were asking families of missing people to provide DNA in a hope to strike some matches. The Vincent family's DNA make no match to the unidentified Green River Killer victims, but this did mean that their DNA was now in the system. In December 2006, Steve Nash, the detective tasked with solving this case, provides the DNA lab with more evidence, and researchers are finally able to develop a full DNA profile of Tiburon Jane Doe, as she was referred to back then. Despite exhuming her body, it was evidence gathered almost three decades beforehand that provided the key to unlocking this case. Most of the physical and biological evidence had deteriorated over the years, as you would expect, but on the evidence list was a sexual assault kit, including swabs, nail clippings, and pubic hairs. The root and shaft of one of Tammy's pubic hairs taken during her autopsy still proved viable. It was through this single hair that they managed to obtain a full DNA profile. Two months later, in February 2007, they get a hit on CODIS. As you've probably guessed, the body was that of Tammy Vincent, and Nash contacts the authorities over in King County in Washington. By the March, the Marin County Sheriff's Office organises an investigative team to solve this case once and for all, as Nash flies to Washington to notify Tammy's family. After 27 years, the Vincent family finally have some answers as to what happened to Tammy after her disappearance. It wasn't a nice answer, it wasn't what they wanted, but they had closure. In the August, Tammy's body is exhumed for the second time. At the wishes of her family, she was cremated and a small funeral was held with loved ones. Her ashes placed in a mausoleum at Frater Cemetery in northeast Washington. Tammy's younger sister, Sandy Vincent, said back in 2007, For me, it's closure on one chapter, but another one remains open. The story is still going on. I can't believe she was murdered and that someone is getting away with it. I would really like to see them pay for what they've done. Because, of course, solving the mystery of her identity was only half the investigation. Now they have to find out why she died and who did it. As John Tonkin, director of the Missing Persons Programme, has said, the identification was absolutely critical to furthering the investigation. It was stalled until the body was identified. Now, investigators could get to work. 
Let's talk a bit about Tammy, who she was and her story. Most of this information I found comes from a Seattle Times article written by Peyton Whiteley. Of course, as always, all my sources will be linked down below. Tammy Vincent was born in 1962 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but her family soon moved to Okanogan County in Washington where she grew up on a farm. Her mum is called Glenda, but I couldn't find the name of her dad. Tammy was always the adventurous type, she was very headstrong, she knew what she wanted. Her sister said that she wanted to become a nurse one day. But as so often happens with headstrong kids, when Tammy reached teenage years, her relationship with her parents got rocky. They would fight constantly, so Tammy would run away, sometimes disappearing for weeks on end. She would always come back, until one day, she didn't. In 1978, when Tammy was just 16 years old, she left home permanently and ended up in a foster home in Spokane, which she also ran away from. Soon, Tammy turned to sex work as a means of survival. She worked in a dive bar in Seattle called Tease and Rip, a venue that was said to be part peep show, part strip joint. Whether she worked there by her own choice or by coercion, we don't know. The last time her family saw her, Tammy turned up home in the summer of 1979 in a car with someone else. It wasn't a long visit, she never got out of the car, and then they never heard from her again. The last time her family saw her, Tammy turned up home in the summer of 1979 in a car with someone else, but it wasn't a long visit, she never even got out of the car. They heard from her again later that summer via a phone call in which she said that she was scared, her life was in danger and she wanted to come home. But then they never hear from her again. In August 1979, King County Police raided a South 180th Street apartment that they believed was a front for a prostitution ring and inside they found Tammy, who by then was 17. I use the term prostitution here by choice as I feel like there needs to be an important distinction between people who choose sex work, consensual acts by their own volition, and the forced act of prostitution. It doesn't feel right calling it sex work when it's not work, they're being forced into it. I don't know, it feels like there's a grey area here, but I digress. Tammy was picked up in this raid alongside some other women and she was offered a deal. She would get immunity if she testified against five men who had been accused of forcing women and girls into prostitution. Tammy was young and scared and she agreed to testify. And this was about a month before she was murdered. Two days after the raid, Tammy was put on a plane back to Spokane and was returned to the care of the State Department of Social and Health Services. But just the very next day, Tammy was reported as missing again by a caseworker. The story goes that a lawyer working for the five defendants managed to track Tammy down to her safe house and convince the worker there to let her go. And she was basically just turned back over to the men that she'd managed to escape. Tammy was last seen on the 10th of September in Seattle at a motel on Aurora Avenue North. She was spotted getting into a car, a silver Lincoln Continental that belonged to one of the defendants in the case. From there, no one who knew her reported ever seeing her again, although we do think that she was seen by the sales clerk at Woolworths the night before her murder. It's speculated, although not proven, that she was driven by her abductors to the Palace Theatre in Turk Street in San Francisco and was ordered to work there, which just so happens to be down the road from the Woolworths. 
The very next day, the day after this confirmed sighting, a King County Superior Judge signed a protective order that identified Tammy as a material witness in the case, as well as ordering her to testify against her employees. Tammy didn't need to be present for all of this to happen, she wasn't there at this point. But of course, Tammy never turned up to trial to testify. She had vanished and nobody knew what had happened to her. I'm not sure why the connection was never made to the body of a young woman that mysteriously appeared on a California beach very soon after this. Maybe it was just different jurisdictions. I assume the authorities tried to look for Tammy when she didn't show up in court, but maybe they didn't, maybe they just didn't care. Despite the lack of testimony, the defendants in the prostitution ring case were convicted of promoting prostitution and they were sent to prison. Their terms ranged from five years to eight years, but no other charges were filed against them. Now the following information I'm about to share with you comes from an email I received from the person who asked me to cover this case. I haven't been able to confirm this information, I don't know if this is true, but this viewer has done a lot of research into the case, so I do feel like it could be worth mentioning. Tammy, as I said, was put to work at the Palace Theatre in San Francisco after she was collected from the group home. At the time of the murder, the proprietor of the Palace Theatre was a man called Adrian Pacino, who just so happened to be a known associate of Joseph Wiley Brown, the head of the organised crime ring of which members Tammy was about to testify against. If this is true, then the Palace Theatre probably wouldn't have been a particularly safe place for Tammy to be. She was probably put there specifically so they could keep a close eye on her. What straw broke to cause them to murder her, I'm not too sure. Brown and Pacino have both since died. According to the book, The Education of a Coroner, the most likely suspects here were the Gypsy Jokers, a motorcycle gang that controlled prostitution, drugs and guns in the Seattle-Tacoma area and beyond. Rumour has it that they were the only gang that scared the Hells Angels. They controlled scam houses across the city, which had a very interesting business model. Their target customers were mostly businessmen travelling to the city, who'd be lured by young women to come to the houses for sex. At the front door, the young woman would leave the John with somebody else with whom he would discuss prices and pay before being sent down the hallway to meet a sex worker. Expecting another woman to greet him, instead he'd be faced with a big bouncer telling the guy to get lost and leave. You wouldn't dare argue because these bouncers were scary guys and you couldn't go to the police because you were trying to pay for sex. If Tammy had indeed found herself messed up with these gangs and the evidence does seem to point towards the fact, then her life would have been in danger from the very first moment. If they intended to kill her to stop her from testifying, I'm not sure why they wouldn't have done it as soon as she was collected from the group home. Maybe they wanted to give her a chance and she did something to piss them off. Maybe they just changed their minds. With what I was able to learn about Tammy, she was a headstrong young girl who probably would have put up a fight. I don't think she would have been the kind of person to sit in silence. You would think that all of this would be enough for investigators to have some kind of answer already, maybe even made an arrest, but it doesn't seem that way. Their biggest lead is the man in the bright white suit in Woolworths the night before her murder. Had Tammy known that he was buying her murder weapons at the time? The likelihood is that she did, but I hope she didn't. She must have been so scared. She was 17, she was a baby. 
Police believe that the man in the white suit probably had at least two other men helping him torture and kill Tammy in the days prior to her murder. They believe that she was taken to the beach in a blue van and probably had handguns, which they used to make her do what they wanted. Tammy's family weren't aware with her links to organised crime at this time. They had no idea what had become of Tammy, but now they're on a mission to get justice. The coroner's office have since closed their side of the case, she's identified, their work is done, but the police still do have their own work to do. This case is still open and they do believe that the people responsible for the murder of Tammy Vincent are still out there and can be caught. It's just about finding them, about untangling the tight web of organised crime. That's not something that's easily done, people in these circles don't speak. Half this mystery solved and now it's time for the other half as well. As always, if you do know anything about this case, then the relevant authorities' contact will be in the top line of the description box down below. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I will see you in the next one. Bye, guys.